tell me the story of Christmas. Now, I got to be honest with you, uh, sometimes when we look at the Christmas story, uh, some people look at it and go, man, that just, I don't know if I can wrap my mind around that. I don't know if I can actually believe that. Is it real or is it just pretend? And we may wonder this at times because the story in the Bible of the nativity of the birth of, of, of Jesus is filled with all kinds of incredible things, right? Some supernatural, some faith-demanding events. We've got angels appearing. We've got angels or uh, virgins, uh, or a virgin, not virgins, plural. I better straighten that up right now. Virgin conceiving, uh, God descending to earth. As a, as a baby, we've got a special star that's, that's uh, floating around the sky at night, guiding the wise men to the birthplace. And so a lot of people, when we come to this time of year, we say, is it fact or is it fiction? Is it something that really happened or is it just an old story that we've bought into for years and years? Is it just some warm, fuzzy thing that, that we get all sentimental about because it brings back memories of when we were a child? Or do we really believe it? And if you don't believe it, should I just say I believe it just to make other people happy so they don't look at me like I'm some kind of weirdo? And so is it wrong to have doubts about these kinds of things? We're starting this, this brand new series uh, this week. We're calling it The Conflicts of Christmas. And today we're talking about the conflict that happens in a lot of people's lives of what do we believe? Do we really believe what the Bible says or are we a little skeptical about it? And there's a, a story in the book of the Gospel of Luke. I think it should help us. If any of us are struggling with, with conflict uh, of, of doubt, uh, versus faith, whether we believe it or not, I hope that this message really helps you today. And so we go to the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you don't have your Bible with you, uh, take out your phone or you can look on the screen uh, with us. And, and we read from Luke 1 that the very first supernatural event that took place was... Uh, an angel appeared to an old man by the name of Zechariah, and he's telling them that, that this old man and this woman, again, God has done this before, right? He, 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 an old couple that's well along in years, they weren't able to have a baby, but he appears to Zechariah and says, you're going to be a dad, you're going to have a son, you're going to call him John the Baptist, he's going to be a forerunner for Jesus, and so that's really how the Christmas story uh, really starts. Right, and, and so as we read through this, I want you to see the conflict that's going on, uh, the, the, the doubt, the skepticism that is going on in Zachariah's mind, and then the belief that eventually took place in Zachariah's heart. And hopefully, as we look at that story, it resonates with us and maybe helps us through maybe these times of, of where I don't know if I really believe all of this or not. I hope you walk out of here today with your faith in the Christmas story a little deeper than it was when you came in. So beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, here's what it says. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment 
And I want us to see that on the surface, it doesn't look like Zechariah would be a guy that was full of skepticism. It doesn't look like he'd be a guy that's full of doubt. He was experienced. He was a conscientious priest. We just read there that it says that he did everything right. He obeyed all of the commandments. He and his wife both obeyed all of the commandments, did everything, had a good reputation with the people. But then we read this in verse 7. It says they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. And so even though they were disappointed that they hadn't had a child like they had wanted, they continued to believe in God, and they continued to serve Him faithfully in the temple. And then one day, it was Zechariah's day to burn incense in uh, the holy place, and then his faith was about to be challenged. And we pick it up in verse 8. It says, one day Zechariah was serving God in the temple for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot. Now that's casting lots. That's not lot from the Old Testament, just so there's no confusion. He was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. And so all of his family, they're gathered outside, they're praying, and Zechariah goes into the holy place to perform the duties that he's supposed to perform. And verse 11, it says, while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Now, how would you react if you are in a holy place, you're in a sacred place and you're there all by yourself and you know you're in there all by yourself and then all of a sudden someone is standing right in front of you and the doors hadn't opened, you hadn't heard anything, all of a sudden someone's standing right in front of you. How would you react? It wasn't all that long ago, it was about 6.30 in the morning, I was here at the church, I'm going over my sermon as is my custom and I'm downing my it might have been second or third cup of coffee by 6.30, I don't know. And I'm just kind of pouring it down me and I'm doing my normal routine. Just me and my coffee and my sermon, just going over my notes and praying. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in the nursery, which is located right next to my office, I hear, clackety, clack, 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 right? And I'm like, what in the world? And, and it was a toy that needed to have the battery removed or something. It was like this Noah's Ark thing, and, and, and Joanne, can we please get rid of that thing or find battery or do whatever we need to do to get rid of that thing? Because at 6.30 in the morning, and you think you're the only one in the building in this holy place, right? And I was scared to death. I mean, it shook me. That's the reason we're moving the nursery down the hall. We don't really have a need. No, I'm kidding. We, we do have a need, right? Uh, but I was afraid. But you, imagine, here is Zechariah. He's in this holy place. It's, it's him with God, and he's performing this duty that he is supposed to do. And all of a sudden, there's someone in there with him. And Zechariah is just gripped with fear. And so the angel, it was Gabriel, and he said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer's been heard. You and Elizabeth, you're going to have a son. He's going to be great. He's going to bring you a lot of joy. He's going to pave the way for the coming Lord. He's going to be special. He's not to drink any fermented drink. And you are to name him John. And then in verse 18, you see the surprise. Zechariah doubted. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in the most holy place 
and someone appears out of nowhere and starts talking to me, I'm going to assume that that's probably something holy. I mean, I might be afraid at first. Zachariah was. The angel said, do not be afraid. That's what the angels always do because everybody's just a little startled when an angel shows up, right? I would be. He says, do not be afraid. And then the angel starts talking, and it says, Zachariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Well, apparently, he didn't believe the Abraham and Sarah thing. <laughs> God did that once, and maybe you know, he can do it again. But, but here's the first thing that I think we need to understand about this story that I think we can apply to our lives today, because I think a lot of times what happens is we read these stories in the Bible, and we're like, okay, that's a great story, but what does that even mean to me today? Here's the first thing I think we need to understand. Doubt is normal even for godly people. This, this is an important principle that I think we all need to understand. Doubt is normal even for godly people. I think sometimes we think that we have to be so spiritual and so Christian that we can't have any doubts whatsoever. You know, there are some people who find it very easy to believe in the supernatural from the time they're little. They hear the Bible stories. They believe it. They just take it by faith. They don't ever have any doubts. But then there's some people who struggle with that from their youth. They want to believe, but they're honest enough not to pretend to believe if they don't, right? And so here's another thing that I think we need to understand. When an event seems so far beyond the normal experience, we're sometimes tempted to doubt, right? We hear these things and we're like, man, there's just no way that could possibly happen. And so we doubt. One of my favorite old-time stories is about a boy who came home from Sunday school one day. He said, uh, his dad asked him, he said, well, what was the lesson in Sunday school about today, son? He said, well, it was about Moses, and he was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And his father said, well, tell me how that story goes. He said, well, Moses took the slaves out of Egypt, but the Egyptian army pursued them, and they got trapped at the Red Sea. And so Moses, not knowing what to do, had his engineers build a bridge across the sea. And the Israelites walked across the bridge to the other side. And the next morning he looked back. And the Egyptian armies were coming at them across the same bridge. And so Moses got the idea. He called for an airstrike. And so planes came in. And they bombed the bridge. And all of the Egyptian army drowned. The father said, son, is that what your teacher told you in Sunday school today? He said, no, dad, but if I repeat what she told me, you're never going to believe it. We buy into these things that, <laughs> that are humanly possible, maybe, and we discount the fact that the creator of the universe, the one who, who created everything, who spoke it into existence, can do incredible things that our minds can't even comprehend. Now, I want you to understand, doubts about the supernatural are normal. Even at a young age, Zechariah was a godly, blameless priest, and yet he doubted. If you have doubts on occasion, you're in good company. You remember how John the Baptist, right? That's the child that Zechariah and Elizabeth had. John the Baptist doubted Jesus. I guess like father, like son, I guess, right? Jesus, uh, remember the story? John's baptizing people 
and, and he sees Jesus, and he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then months later, John is thrown into prison. He's lonely, and he's hurting. And so he sends a messenger to Jesus saying, are you really the Messiah? Or should we look for someone else? And then later, Jesus says this about John. There's no greater man ever born to woman than John the Baptist. But John doubted. And he doubted because he was hurting. And I think that happens sometimes too. When life's falling apart for you, you're tempted to doubt God's promises and his love for you. I know kids struggle with this. Sometimes they get injured. They miss a big game. Or maybe some of you, you know, you're, you're pushing 40 years old and you're still single and you haven't found that mate. Or maybe you learn that you can't have children. Or maybe you learn that your children are in deep trouble. Or maybe you tithe and you don't see any difference in your financial troubles. Or maybe you live as pure a life as you possibly can, but your mate lets you down. Or maybe the doctor says you have cancer. Or maybe your mom comes to you and says your dad has Alzheimer's. It's a common thing for us to sit back and doubt some of the things that are going on in life when we're hurting. John the Baptist doubted when he was hurting. Remember Thomas? Thomas was hurting. His good friend Jesus had died, had resurrected, but then Jesus appears to the disciples, later appears to Thomas, and Thomas refused to believe it. You know, the other disciples came to him and said, when you weren't there, we were all getting together, and Jesus appeared to us. And Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it until I see the nail prints in his hands and the hole in his side. I'm not going to believe it until I can touch him with my own hand. And sometimes when you don't share the same experiences that other people who are believers have, when you don't share those things, it, it sometimes can initiate doubt, right? When there's a disparity in the way that you feel and what others feel, then sometimes we can be skeptical. When your experience doesn't resonate with the, the, other, or the experience of other believers who are close to God, it can create some uneasiness in us. You ever been sitting in the church service and we're having a worship service? Some people are moved and they just raise their hands and they worship. And you sit there and you go, well, that's not, I don't feel like that, right? I, I can't do that. You know, I, I, I don't, am I, am I bad? Can I not worship? Do yourself a favor. Yeah, go home and watch the Tim Hawkins hand-raising video. Just look it up, on, just Google that, okay? You'll love it. That's a sidetrack. But you may feel that in church sometimes. Some people are weeping over something. You're not weeping. What's wrong with me? Where's my faith? Some people are laughing. You're not laughing. It might not even have anything to do with your spiritual life, but there's a disparity between what you feel and what others around you are feeling. And you're tempted to doubt yourself. You're tempted to doubt your experience with God. And I want to tell you that's normal, even for good people. There wasn't a whole lot of people walking the face of the earth any better than Zechariah at that time. And he was struggling. Here's the second principle. Doubt is beneficial. If it motivates investigation. I think there are times when it's appropriate, even essential, to doubt. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 15 says, Only simpletons believe everything they're told. 
The prudent carefully consider their steps. Someone once said, he who never doubted never thought. (laughs) We need to doubt in order to discern fact from fiction. And that kind of doubt isn't cynicism. I think it's smart. (laughs) There was a story that was circulating several years ago, the World Trade Center. That, you remember a story that, that a man rode, uh, uh, the ra- or rode a, a uh, beam down when the, when the towers were collapsing? There was a story going around that someone in a reputable news organization reported that, that a guy grabbed a hold of the beam and rode it down and lived to tell about it. And that started going around and, and it was later proven that story. That was a hoax. was not true. And yet, people are sharing it all over. We do this on Facebook all the time, don't we? We see something. Oh, it's on, it's on Facebook. It must be true. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it. And then we don't investigate. And then we just wind up looking like really, really lame and not very smart Christians. I heard that there is an annual world champion liars contest. And just this last year, they have banned politicians from participating. John Seth, the president of the Liars Club in Burlington, Wisconsin, which hosts the event, explains that the contest is for amateurs only. (laughs) I think that's hilarious. Uh, If you don't doubt some politicians, if you don't doubt some reporters, if you don't doubt some preachers, if you don't doubt some salespeople, you're going to be gullible and you're going to fall for some things that, that aren't right. You're going to be vulnerable to deception. Jesus taught his followers to doubt some things. He said, if you hear somebody say, Jesus has returned and he's out there in the desert, don't believe it because when I come back, every eye is going to see it. Don't just accept it 100% by faith. Sometimes you've got you to investigate. You've got to doubt. You see, there's two types of doubt. There's a doubt of conscience and there's a doubt of convenience. The one is honest. The other is dishonest. The doubt of conscience says, I can't honestly say I believe when I don't, but I'm willing to examine the evidence to see if it's true. The doubt of convenience says, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's easier not to believe So I don't want to get confused with the evidence. So I'm not going to examine it. You see, the second type of doubt uses skepticism to justify immoral behavior. The first kind of doubt, the conscientious doubt, asks honest questions, investigates in order to come to a reasonable conclusion. That's why Jesus was very patient with people. You ever notice how patient Jesus was with people? I have to work on that. Anybody with me on that? I've got to work on that. If you went Black Friday shopping, you know what I'm talking about. Amen. It was a little bit of a struggle. It's kind of like, you know, it, you, you look at some people and you say, I know God loves you. I'm working on it. Uh, but, but I'm just not quite there yet. But Jesus loved everybody. And when John the Baptist had his doubt, he didn't say, John, you, you knucklehead, what's wrong with you? When, when John said, are you the Messiah or not? Jesus didn't throw up his hand and say, oh, no, not John the Baptist. I can't believe he's starting to doubt me. I'm so disappointed in him. 
No, Jesus said, you go back and you tell people that the blind will see, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, the poor will have the gospel preached to them. And if they know their Old Testament, when they examine this evidence, they're going to know that I'm who I say I am. He didn't say to Thomas, Thomas, you're on probation. I'm demoting you to the JV. Right? You're no longer one of the 12. You're going to the B team. I'm going to get somebody. I'm going to call somebody. He didn't say that. He said, just come and touch my hands and my side, and you're going to see. You're going to believe. Don't doubt. Believe. You see, it can be beneficial. Lord Tennyson said years ago, there's more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than half our creeds. Think about that for a minute. There's more faith in honest doubt than half our creeds. Doubt can be beneficial if it motivates us to honestly investigate. Now, the third thing, doubt can be detrimental if it disregards the evidence and is indecisive. Zechariah disregarded the evidence that was put in front of him, right? Should have convinced him. Again, look at Luke 1.19. Zechariah said, how can I believe this? The angel said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me. It was God who sent me to bring you this good news. Dr. Lewis Foster used to say this at Cincinnati Bible College. He says, I'm Gabriel. I come from God. Why wouldn't you believe me? And he says, but now, since you don't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. How many of you ladies would have appreciated that during your pregnancy? Just, okay, just... For, for my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. You see, when an angel appears and relates something like this, that's reason enough to believe. But Zechariah doubted. And so the Lord disciplined Zechariah for his doubt in him. And for nine months, he couldn't speak. Now, that would be a serious, serious disability. The only way that he could communicate with anybody was he had to write his thoughts out and show them to people, right? And so when he comes out of the holy place, he's seen the angel that has spoken to him. His friends and his family are asking, what, what took you so long, right? And I can just picture him gesturing wildly, you know, trying to communicate what happened in there. He couldn't talk. And he's like, you know, and, and just kind of what's going through his mind and, and basically he got got it across him he said I've seen the angel and Elizabeth's gonna have a baby but he couldn't speak now if we continue in our doubt if we have this prolonged doubt I think that can become a disability to us as well if we have this doubt and we refuse to investigate it I believe that can disable us It'll rob you of your spiritual joy. It can cause you to become cynical toward others who believe. It kind of feeds off of self. And once you get the reputation of being a cynic, you kind of feel obligated to live up to it. You know what I'm talking about? There's some people, well, that's just, uh, that's just the way she is. I love, to, I love to hang out. I don't know who I'm going to pick. I'll pick on Laura because she's sitting up here in the front. I've never heard anybody say, oh, I just love to hang out with Laura. I love to hear her complain. Nobody loves that. But then we, we have this, this thought that like, well, that's just who I am. I've had people come to me and say, I don't mean to complain. Well, then don't. 
You don't have to. You don't have to be cynical. It's almost like, I don't mean to complain, but I can't help myself. (laughs) I have to, right? And so I think when we have these doubts, we have a tendency to do that more. Doubt also, uh, it sours our personality, right? It just causes us to, man, be this Christian that, that I think, again, if we don't have the joy of the Lord in our lives and we have this sour personality and people know that we're a Christian, I think that does more disservice to the kingdom of God than just about anything else we can do. Doubt also opens the door to temptation. When Abraham wavered in his conviction that God would fulfill his promise of a son, he doubted God. And he yielded to temptation to have relations with his wife's handmaid. And the result was a son that was born to her that has brought all kinds of turmoil on the earth. Doubt negates our witness, too. Belief is contagious. If you're around somebody that just believes in something so strongly, you wouldn't believe the number of people back in 2016 that I convinced to become Cub fans because I believed so strongly that the Cubs were going to win the World Series. And they did it, right? If, if we had that kind of faith, that kind of certainty, and we talked to people that much about Jesus, it's contagious. Right? But when you're struggling with doubt about the validity of Christianity, if you're saying, oh, I don't know if all that stuff in there is true or not, it's going to cause people to doubt themselves. You're not going to convince anybody to follow Jesus. Second, or next, doubt nullifies our prayers. Jesus said, if you have faith and, and don't doubt, you can say this mountain, go cast yourself into the sea and it'll be done. The first chapter of James says, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. When you doubt, it negates your prayer. I think doubt also excuses ongoing immorality. There was a preacher at a Christian church in New York. His name is Greg Nettle. He had a, an interview with Howard Stern. Everybody know who Howard Stern is, right? Like, I mean, you, you don't listen to him, right? You, you just know. Who, okay, great. Just want to check, right? So, so Greg was preaching a sermon series, and, and the, the sermon series was, what would Jesus say to dot, dot, dot? And each week he picked a well-known person and said, what would Jesus say to this particular person? And one of the Sundays that he was preaching, it was, what would Jesus say to Howard Stern? And they put that out on the marquee of their church, and somebody from the community called Howard Stern. They saw the sign, they called the radio station, let him know about it. Howard Stern called that preacher and said, I want you to come on my radio program and talk to me about what God would say to me. And Greg agreed to go. And they had him on at 7 o'clock in the morning, prime time in New York. People going to work, 20 million listeners. Howard Stern said, what would God say to Howard Stern? And I think he probably thought that, the, that Greg Nettle, the preacher, was going to chastise him for all of his nastiness and all of his immoral behavior. But here's what Greg said. He said, Howard, I think God would say to you, I love you. 
I want to forgive you. I died on the cross for you. I want to live with you eternally if you'll repent and come to me. To his credit, Howard Stern listened, but then he scoffed. And I suspect that he scoffed because, not because he investigated it, right? Not because he looked at the evidence. Not because it lacked credibility. I think he scoffed because he knew that if he did investigate it and he came to the conclusion that it was true, he'd have no choice but to change his life. And the financial loss and the popularity and all of that would go away. So he just scoffed. You see, folks, most doubt is not really intellectual doubt. Most doubt is moral doubt. It's rooted in disobedience. I think a lot of people doubt because we just love our sin. We don't want to believe. I think that's why so many times in Scripture we're told repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. We're not going to believe in Christ and eliminate doubt until we're willing to forsake our sin. Doubt's detrimental to us, folks. If it's a base for immorality. Finally, doubt is conquerable. It should be overcome. Zachariah's doubts were soon eliminated because the evidence was undeniable. He couldn't speak, no matter how hard he tried. Just as the angel predicted. Right? He said, you're not going to be able to speak until the baby's born. And so he can't speak. And then a few months go by. And Elizabeth is, okay, they're start, they're, they're, you know, there's evidence now. And it's like, okay, the evidence is there. It's undeniable evidence. Just as the prophet Gabriel had prophesied. Now skip down to verse 57 in Luke chapter 1. It says, when it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. And now all this is wonderful. And Zechariah is probably more exuberant than anybody. But he still can't speak. In verse 59, it says, when the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zechariah after his father, but Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What? They exclaimed, there's no one in your whole family named John. Isn't that typical? Do you have people do that? We say, hey, what are you going to have? You know what you're going to name it? This is what we've been talking about. Really? You're going to name it that? Has anybody ever been through that? Right? A lot of people are listening to that. You're, John, I don't think I like that name. And so the friends of Zachariah and Elizabeth learned that they're, they're going to have this child. Elizabeth wants to name it John. And I like verse 62. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name them. And I think that's funny because the Bible doesn't say that Zachariah couldn't hear. Have <laughs> you ever done that? You ever started acting stupid around somebody that has a disability? Like, like, like I started talking, first time I ever met Gordon Moat, who's, who's become a friend of mine, who's the blind piano player on all the Gaither videos. I'm talking to him like this. 
You know, he's like, Ron, I'm, I'm, I'm blind. I'm not deaf, you know. Anybody done? Just me? Okay, very good. So they're using, they're using hand gestures, but Zachariah can hear, right? And so they're motioning for him. It says in verse 63, uh, you know, we want to hear your opinion. And, and it's verse 63, he motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. When he obeyed the commandment of the angel and giving him the name John, suddenly his tongue was loosed and he could speak. And here's what it says as we continue. Awe fell upon the whole neighborhood and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. Two essential things very quickly. One, if you're having doubt this morning, here's the first step in overcoming that. Examine the evidence. Don't sit back and say, well, I don't know what I believe. Don't just sit back and do nothing. I think that's a cop-out. Read the Bible Examine the evidence, see what it has to say. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word of Christ. And don't just read books about the Bible. I think some people read books about the Bible hoping that they can find a loophole. Read the Bible. Right? Commentaries can be useful. Some books about the Bible can help along the way, but dive into the word of God. And then secondly, decide to obey God's word. Examine the evidence. Obey God's word. When Zechariah humbly obeyed God's command, that's when he was able to speak. He examined the evidence. He obeyed it. God blessed him. So I ask you this morning as the worship team comes to lead us in a song of decision, do you believe the evidence? The Bible is just so full of evidence. And even if we didn't have the Bible, God says he's revealed himself in creation so that we're without excuse. Do you believe the evidence that he's put in front of us? I love the story of Mark 9. Man brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus. He was distraught because this demon would sometimes inexplicably throw his son into the fire. And he pleaded, Jesus, if you can do anything, please have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if I can do anything about it. <laughs> All things are possible for those who believe. And you know what that guy answered? You know what that, that father answered? He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that tells me that faith and doubt can coexist in the same person. You might be 80% belief, 20% doubt, maybe 90% belief, 10% doubt. 
They can coexist. But I encourage you, read the word of God. Examine the evidence. Let the Holy Spirit do its work in you. As we sing a song of decision today, if you're willing to step out, if you're willing to come to Jesus and say, I've examined the evidence. I don't like the the way that I'm living my life anymore. I want to turn my life over to him. I trust him. I want to turn away from my sin. I want to repent. I want to be baptized into him. I want to start living for him. That's something you can choose to do today. Maybe you're here. Most of you in this room I know. You've made that decision to follow Christ. You believe in him. But maybe you're 80, 20, 90, 10. Maybe you're 70, 30, 60, 40. I don't know. I encourage you to pray about that. I encourage you to dive in. I encourage you to examine the evidence that's there. Maybe you're here today and you're just looking for a church home. You've already decided to follow Christ and you need a church home. We'd love to welcome you in as a member of our church today. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to pray. And uh, if you have a need, then we, we ask you to come forward at this time.